morning. Our reading this morning is Numbers 25. While Israel was staying in Shechem, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, Each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear into both of them, right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped, but those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, The son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. Since he was as zealous for my honour among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore tell him I am making a covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honour of his God and made atonement for the Israelites." The name of the Israelite who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Salu, the leader of a Simeonite family. And the name of the Midianite woman who was put to death was Cosby, daughter of Zer, a tribal chief of a Midianite family. The Lord said to Moses, treat the Midianites as enemies and kill them. They treated you as enemies when they deceived you in the Peor incident involving their sister Cosby, the daughter of a Midianite leader, the woman who was killed when the plague came as a result of that incident. May the Lord grant us understanding of his word. Good morning, everyone. Um, We are very spread out this morning. It feels like we're into the Christmas school holiday fun. I reckon in the next few weeks, it'd be great to kind of bunch up around the front. And that also leaves more room for kids who need to move around up the back. And it's nice to hear them too. Um, If you're visiting today, welcome. We don't normally go through chapters 22 to 36 of Numbers in one sermon. This is to finish off our time in Numbers before Christmas. So that's why we're where we are. How about I pray that we'll understand what we're looking at. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your mercy to us. Um, Thank you 
for your faithfulness to every promise and every commitment you've ever made. Lord, thank you that we can know forgiveness, that we can have sure hope for the future because of Jesus' death and his resurrection. And Lord, we pray that as we look at this part of the Old Testament, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and encourage us. We pray that we would be spurred on to keep living for Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. The engineer that's deep inside me likes to see a job finished and to see a job finished well. And the engineer that's deep inside me would really like to have something to be remembered by, like, I don't know, the Sydney Harbour Bridge or the Opera House or the Story Bridge or a pedestrian bridge between here and Rock Riverside Park, anything really, just some sort of achievement to be remembered by. And I think we're all the same. You may not have that sort of bent. You might want to be remembered for something more significant than a bridge, more meaningful than some sort of construction. But the truth is, you cannot take it with you when you die. It's all over. The thing that's far more important than any achievement in our short lives on this earth, the thing that's far more important than any of that is to finish our life with our trust in Jesus and our hope in him. And for us, each one of us in the room here today, that's our goal, to finish life trusting in Jesus, seeking to live for him. And to do that means we need to keep our eyes on Jesus and keep living for him. And I think that's one of the lessons that as you read this part of Numbers as a New Testament Christian, as you read this part of Numbers, I think that's one of the things you come away with, the encouragement to to set your eyes on Jesus and press on and persevere. Keep trusting in Jesus. Keep living for him and finish your life well with your trust in Jesus. What I want to do in the next few minutes is what we've done over the last few sermons going through chunks of Numbers. What I want to do is do the quick flyover, give you an appreciation of what's here in this, these chapters, but then to come back to the passage that was read for us in chapter 25 and zoom in there. So when you go to the start of chapter 22, 22 verse 1, what you see there is that you have a new generation of the nation of Israel, a new generation camped in the plains of Moab, just across the Jordan from the land of Canaan, the land that God has promised to give them. This new generation of Israelites are preparing to fight battles, the battles they'll need to fight to take the land and to possess it as their own. And God is the one who will enable them to fight those battles and to win them. But just take note in 22 verse 1, where they are, they're in the plains of Moab. As you keep reading on, verse 2, the local Moabites, they feel threatened by this horde of Israelites that have come in from the desert, these nomadic people. In 22 verse 7, it's not just the Moabites, it's also the Midianites as well. Um, We'll come back to these people, the Moabites, the Midianites. They're the enemy on the outside of the nation of Israel. There's also an enemy on the inside that you'll see, particularly in chapter 25. Um, there's competing interests, ways in which these people will be distracted from living for God. There's that battle that's going on inside as, uh, as well. So there's the battle on the outside, the battle on the inside. We'll come back to those things. Let me show you a few key points along the way through chapters 22 to 36. Um, These two things I'll show you just remind you of what we're looking at here. So jump ahead to chapter 26, verse 1. So we're jumping over all that stuff about the Moabites and Balaam. We'll come back to that. When you come to 26, verse 1, you have there another census. 
another counting off of the people. It's a second census. We saw the first census way back in chapter 1. In chapter 1, the census was numbering off the fighting men, the army of the Israelites. This time, the, 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 the focus seems a little bit different. If you look down in chapter 26, verses 52 and 53, the concern seems to be more with who's going to get which part of the land, the allotment of the land, ensuring that all these tribes have a place in the land of Canaan. And so the purpose in chapter 26 of this census seems to be preparing for settling in the land of Canaan. Another thing you'll notice if you are a numbers person, um, you're the type of person who gets excited about tax returns and those sorts, you know, on the inside. If you're a numbers type person, you'll notice here in this census, there's about the same number of Israelites, pretty close-ish. That's the engineering approximation. Similar number of Israelites. It's like there's been a one-for-one replacement, new-for-old replacement. You now have a new generation of Israel, a new people of Israel, a new generation of Israelites preparing to enter the land. That's the context of what we're reading. The new Israel, the new generation coming to the land of Canaan to fight their way into it. Then as you look across chapters 22 to 36, you appreciate these chapters are all interconnected. And you see that, for example, when you look at the story that's brought to your attention in chapter 27. So you've got the census in 26. You've got in chapter 27, you hear about Zelophehad's daughters in chapter 27. Zelophehad's died without a son, so there's no way to inherit. He's got his daughters. They're listed in verse 1, Mala, Noah, Haglah, Milka, and Terzah. What will become of them? Well, it's decided that they will receive an allotment in the land. And that kind of sets the principle for others in verse 8 who might find themselves in a similar predicament. The narrator brings this to our attention because what matters through these chapters is the land, their possession, what God's giving them in Canaan. And then all these chapters are interconnected. So if you keep a finger in chapter 27 and jump to the last bit in chapter 36, you'll see Salafahad's daughters are mentioned again. And you're told that everything was done as it was meant to be. They get a possession. They get an inheritance in the land. And so the way the narrator zooms in on Zelophehad's daughters in chapters 27 and chapter 36 just underlines that this is one big section. And it also shows you what we're looking at. This is a new generation of Israelites and their preparation to battle their way into the land of Canaan to receive their inheritance. Back in chapter 27, after hearing about Zelophehad's daughters, in, in chapter 27, verse 12, we're told that Joshua will take Moses' place. Remember Joshua and Caleb, the, the spies that went into the land? They're the only two that um, said, yeah, we can do this. God's on our side. Um, Joshua will take over as the leader of God's people at the end of these 40 years of wandering around in the desert. And then you keep reading in through chapters 28 to 30, there's details there about offerings the people are to make when, and festivals there to observe and the importance of vows, all these things which will impact the way they live in the land when they are allocated their spots there. Um, then you come to chapter 31. And in chapter 31, you return to the locals, the enemy on the outside, the Midianites. And you read deeper in, the Moabites are mentioned in there too, and Balaam as well. Um, in chapter 31, this will be Moses' last battle that he'll lead Israel into. And in chapter 32, we're told the Reubenites and the Gadites, they'll have their inheritance on that side of the Jordan. They'll be like the people across there in Centenary, all the way across the river. And there'll be this Trans-Jordan connection, this Trans-Brisbane River connection thing that has to happen. And, but the important thing that keeps running through here is the people will receive the land. 
some on one side, some on the other side. Then you come to chapter 33, and in chapter 33 you have a recount of the nation's journey under Moses, how they came out of Egypt, came to Canaan, failed to go in, went away from Canaan, came back, and they're here again. And chapter 33, verse 50 says, they're in the plains of Moab. Moses is there, and God speaks through Moses and tells these people the importance of driving out the people in the land. You see in 55 and 56 um, of chapter 33, a warning of what will happen if they don't. And you flip to chapter 34, and you have there the boundaries of the land, or this land of Canaan that's been given to them. Chapter 35 tells you that the Levites, because remember the Levites, even when they move around in the desert and camp, they're, they're treated differently. They don't get an allotment um, in the land of Canaan, but what they do get is a town in each of the tribe's territories. And you're told that there will be, in chapter 35, uh, verse 6, there will be six towns that are like cities of refuge, like safe homes across um, the land of Israel when they're in Canaan. All I've done is kind of give you a very quick flyover of chapters 22 to 36. And the two key bits, as you look back through it, I think, are chapter 26, where you have the census, the new people, new generation of Israelites, and in chapter 33, there's a reminder of the long journey they've completed. All these chapters are setting you up for the next phase, the battle coming into the land of Canaan. Now come back to chapter 22. So you've gone the, the flyover. We're back to where we started. And we're moving towards chapter 25 now. Um, in chapters 22 to 24, have a think about the local people, the Moabites, the enemy on the outside. In chapter 22, verses 2 and 3, you see there that Balak, the king of Moab, he's terrified of the Israelites. There's so many of them. Um, Black's heard about the stories of how God has looked after Israel in the desert. No doubt he's heard about the food that just lands out of the sky for them, the way that God's guided them and cared for them. He's um, witnessed this nation's victories over Sion and Og and Arad, and Balak, well, he's scared. So Balak sends for Balaam, the sorcerer. Balaam's the man who you pay him money and he'll pronounce curses on people. And so Black sends for, for Balaam. Balaam will take Balak's money um, and pronounce curses. He's like a, a mercenary prophet. And you'll remember we met him when we were looking at 2 Peter and I told you he was an Israelite and we know now he's not. He's one of the enemy on the outside. Um, this alliance between Balak and Balaam includes not just the Moabites, but if you look down in verse 7 of chapter 23, it includes the Midianites as well. They're all in on this together. These are some of Israel's enemies on the outside. The rest of chapters 22 to 24, they are an amazingly well-told story. It's part of the Old Testament where you are... It is impressive that the way the narrative is put together. It just, yeah, it just is. So the rest of chapters 22 to 24, they are this amazing story. So Balaam reluctantly agrees to go with Balak. But an angel of the Lord stands in the way, blocks the progress, and Balaam's donkey keeps turning off the road because the angel of the Lord is there to stop him. And Balaam beats his donkey to get it back on track. And that happens three times, at which point the donkey speaks to Balaam. It's an interesting part of the Bible, isn't it? A talking donkey. It's not just Shrek. It's here, too. Have a look at 22 verse 28. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? And Balaam answered the donkey, you made a fool of me. 
If I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you've always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? And the donkey talks to him and he answers back. Interesting. No, he said in verse 30. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. Um, Apart from the talking donkey, God can do anything. He can make donkeys talk. Apart from that, jumping off the page, there is this surprising symmetry with what you just read there and what you go on to read about. So you keep reading. Just like Balaam drove his donkey really hard and pushed it and pushed it until God stopped him, in the same way, Balak drives Balaam really, really hard and pushes him and pushes him until God stops him. There's this weird parallel thing happening as you read on through the chapter, uh, through the chapters rather. And just like the donkey was stuck between Balaam's demands and God's demands, Balaam himself is stuck between Balak's demands and God's demands. And, just, um, and so just as God could make the donkey talk, So God puts words in Balaam's mouth. It's this amazingly clever narrative, isn't it? Likening Balaam to a donkey, to an ass. It's quite clever. A very cleverly crafted telling of of what happened. Balaam is a donkey of a man, is what you're reading, aren't you? Um, And as as an Israelite reading this, and for us as Christians reading it, you're saying, yeah, God is sovereign. He can make anything happen. He can even make a donkey talk, and he can even make Balaam's curses be turned into blessings. Balaam had to speak good things, had to bless Israel, not curse them. So Israel's enemy on the outside, as you read this, you appreciate they don't stand a chance. These locals that that are opposed to the nation of Israel, they've got no hope. However, there's more to this story because as you keep reading... um, Balaam shows us the battle on the inside as well. Um, In Sunday school, the story of Balaam will stop where we just stopped there. In fact, it will stop at 24 verse 25. If you look at 24 verse 25, then Balaam got up and returned home and Balak went on his way. End of story, done. But we're reading chapters 22 to 36 as one unit. You keep reading and you discover Balaam is far from done. The story goes on. It doesn't end there. Just as the account of Zelophehad's daughters kind of it pulls this section of the, of the Bible together, so does this story of Balaam. Look what happens in the next verse, 25 verse 1. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, these local people. Um, verse 2, who invited them to sacrifice to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods, so Israel joined in the worshipping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The nation of Israel joins in worshipping Baal. That's ridiculous. They're seduced into it by sexual encounters with Moabite women. Moabite women, that's Balak's kind of tribe, isn't it? Balak, um, his nation, the one who wants the curses from Balaam. The other key woman in the chapter is there in verse 14 of chapter 25, a Midianite woman, a leader of the Midianites. These are, if you like, representatives of the Moabites and the Midianites. So remember how interconnected these chapters are. Chapter 31, as 
jumping ahead here to chapter 31, as Moses is preparing to die, he has unfinished business in chapter 31. 31 verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites. After that, you'll be gathered to your people. Last thing to do, Moses, take vengeance on these Midianite people. And so the people fight, jump down to 31 verse 7. They fought against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every man. Among their victims were Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, son of Beor, with the sword. Balaam's been busy in the background. You keep reading, you come down to 31 verse 15. Have you allowed all the women to live, he asked them. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and were the means of turning the Israelites away from the Lord in what happened at Peor, so that a plague struck the Lord's people. This whole incident in chapter 25 where the Israelites are distracted away from God to worship Baal by being seduced by these Midianite women, that's all Balaam's doing. Balaam's caused Israel to lose the battle on the inside, the battle against their desires, to be distracted from trusting in God and living for him. Um, we, met, we meet Balaam in the New Testament, as we saw in 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2. He's held up as someone who will do anything for money, basically, and we're told not to be like that. Balaam, he loved the wages of wickedness, and it's like he's convinced the Israelites to join him in a similar way. The, the people of Israel in chapter 25 lost the battle within because, like it or not, um, they were tempted away from God. And for us, as we read this part of the Old Testament, we need to appreciate that, yes, that's the battle they had is the same battle that we have to keep trusting God, to keep living for him, not to look to right or to left. Um, Balaam connives to deceive the men of Israel, to seduce them, to lead them off the straight and narrow, so that in the end they bring God's judgment down on themselves in the form of a horrible, horrible plague, a plague in which thousands and thousands die. Um, We see Israel lose the battle within, and so listen to what uh, the Apostle Paul says, looking back on this time. If I've clicked the right buttons, it'll be on the screen behind me. It's 1 Corinthians 10 from verse 6. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. I take it Paul's referring to this incident in Numbers chapter 25 and saying, it's all written down for you as a warning. That's for us. It's a warning for us. Verse 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. There's the warning, isn't there, to keep your eyes on Jesus, keep living for him, keep persevering, keep trying to finish life well with your trust in Jesus. It's a battle that many of the Israelites lost that day and Paul uses their uh, failure as a reason to motivate us. There's something else to show you in, back in Numbers 25. Though. Come back to Numbers 25. Look at what Phinehas does. I know this part it raises questions for us, but it also is drawn to our attention for a reason. So when you look at chapter 25, you see in verse 1, 
um, what the Israelites got up to. Down in verse 3, 25 verse 3, So Israel joined in worshipping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. And you see the seriousness of this in verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of, this, of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. This is serious, and the consequences are massive. And as you read on, you'll, I think you discover that there's this plague that comes. And maybe the plague comes because Moses doesn't quite do exactly what he's told to do. But while Moses and the leaders are attempting to deal with this horrendous sin, look at what happens in 25 verse 6. Then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. I'd call that brazen. And then verse 7 when Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove a spear through both of them, through the Israelite, and into the woman's body. And then the plague against the Israelites was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. Phinehas is so affected by this, this brazen action that he takes action himself. And as you read on, what he does is affirmed. When you jump down to verse 14, you discover that this woman and this man, they were leaders in Israel and in Midian, representatives of these people. It's like them dying was a representative death of these leaders, like what God said should happen. But think about Phinehas again. He's, he's so driven by a desire to see God honoured that he kills two people. It's troubling to us. We read it and it, it is troubling. But look what the passage says about it in verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, for he was as zealous as I am for, the, for my honour among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. Therefore, tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of lasting and a, and a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honour of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. Yeah, it's complicated. It's troubling to read. It raises questions and questions which we should talk about. But the point that's being drawn to our attention is that Phinehas stuck up for God's name. He saw what was happening and he acted. It's not that he earned his salvation. It's not that he earned God's favour in some special way he was already part of God's saved people, already part of that community. He didn't earn his place in the priesthood. He already had it. But he acted in a way that showed his zeal for the Lord. And it's not just his zeal that saved Israel that day. It was, I think it was the blood that was shed. It was a representative blood, these two leaders. It's like their death atoned for the sin. There's, something else, um, there's someone else who was driven by zeal, strong zeal like that, and you'll recognise the passage. It's in the New Testament. Think about the way Jesus behaved in the temple that day in John chapter 2, clearing out the temple. Um, and in his disciples in verse 17, they said, that is what is written, zeal for my, your house will consume me. Phinehas' zeal is that kind of zeal that caused him to do something radical, to deal with sin. At the end of um, the book of Numbers, we see 
as you look across these chapters, you see God's people, the people of Israel, the new generation, preparing to battle their way into the land. And you get this example of the enemy on the outside, and here in chapter 25, the enemy on the inside. And the battle that many of them lost that day is the same battle that Paul encourages us not to lose, this battle to keep persevering with our trust in Jesus. Let's remember that our goal is to end our short lives on this earth with our trust in Jesus, having lived for him. Um, look to Jesus and press on. I mean, if you, if you want to uh, finish on some New Testament encouragement, look at the words in Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he's looking back at the whole of chapter 11, all these Old Testament people that trusted in God. Since we're surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on, the, on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. For us, as we finish looking in Numbers, yeah, the encouragement is we read Numbers thinking about heaven. That's what God promises us. We're persevering, continuing to live for Jesus until he returns. Don't get distracted. Don't get distracted by materialism. Don't, don't get distracted by, by the deceitfulness of sin. Keep fighting for faith in God with the kind of zeal that Vina has had. Let's pray for each other that that would be what we do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your love and your mercy towards us. Thank you for your faithfulness to every promise and every commitment that you have ever made. Lord, thank you that as people who have heard the gospel, thank you that we know that by putting our trust in Jesus, we have sure and certain forgiveness of our sins. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have of spending eternity with you because of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. Lord, please help us to trust in you. Please help us to help one another to have our eyes fixed on Jesus and to keep living for him. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.